the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Is everybody comfortable? Are you warm enough or too warm or just nice? Just nice, okay. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Nobody knows for sure how the Roman church began. Uh, certainly Paul, Apostle Paul, uh, he did not get to Rome until the latter part of his life. Long, long after the church at Rome had been founded. Uh, we know that Peter certainly did not get to Rome, so he did not found it. Probably, and most possibly, it was at the Feast of Pentecost. Whenever those who came, and it gives a list in Acts 2 of the nations and the cities they came from, and it says visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes. And they were there at that moment when Peter came out of the upper room and preached that fantastic sermon, and 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it would seem like probably that some of those from Rome at that moment who got born again took that back with them, and a fledgling church was born at Rome. As far as we know, that's the best guess that we can uh, give to that. But however, the church at Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles, uh, both with their differing views, their differing backgrounds from Judaism to paganism. And so when they came together, obviously there would be disagreements. Uh, and one of the chief disagreements was this thing about justification. Uh, would the Jews who had the law be more justified than the Gentiles who had no law? Well, Paul answers that dilemma of justification when he gives the great teaching on justification by faith. And so that's at the heart of this uh, book. Paul greatly desired to go to Rome. He had planned, he had hoped to go on several occasions, but always something cropped up. Something happened to prevent him going to Rome until right at the very end of his life. However, he heard about Phoebe, uh, a Christian lady who lived nearby where he was, who was going to make a trip to Rome. And so he sent a letter with Phoebe to the church at Rome. Now this initially was supposed to be a letter of introduction. When Christians traveled in those days to other churches, somebody with responsibility and authority would write a letter of commendation so they would know who they were getting. And so this began as a letter of commendation, letter of reference for Phoebe to the church at Rome. But it ended up a whole treatise. 
had ended up one of the greatest books in the whole New Testament. In fact, Luther called it the chief book of the New Testament. Elsewhere, it's described as the cathedral of Christian praise. And so, this particular letter that was supposed to be an letter of introduction ends up as the greatest revelation in the entire New Testament from the hand of Paul. It's a fantastic book. C.W. Slemming says that the whole book can be divided into three distinct areas. Doctrinal, dispensational, and practical. On the doctrinal side, the first eight chapters are doctrinal. Chapters 1 to 4, the sinner and his salvation. Chapters 5 to 8, the saint and his sanctification. And then dispensational, chapters 9 through to 11, specifically talks about the Jewish question, which is very relevant today. Because there are many, many believers today that say God is finished with the Jew. The church now is the thing, but God is finished with the Jew. You need to read those chapters. He's not finished with them at all. And then practical chapters 12 to 16, the servant and his servant. So chapter 8, verse 1 that we just read together is the beginning of the end of the doctrinal section. Chapter 8 has been called the Christian's Declaration of Freedom. And there are a number of freedoms there. Freedom from defeat, freedom from discouragement, freedom from fear, and freedom from the one I want to preach about this morning, freedom from condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This is the unvarnished truth. There's nothing hazy or fuzzy or blurry about this. It's unmistakable. Now, some may object and say, well, does it not seem too presumptuous or too arrogant for us to say that? Can we not, do we not have to wait until we die to find that out? No, we know that right now. Some will say, well, do we not have to wait to die and then God will weigh us all in the balances and then we'll know whether we're justified or not. No, Paul says right now we're justified. Therefore, there is now no justification or no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Ask yourself this one thing. What is it that condemns us? What is it that condemns us? Sin condemns us and the law condemns us. Sin and the law. The law reveals our sin to us, but it can't save us. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. It can't save us. It condemns us. But Romans 3.24 says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified but we're justified freely by His grace that is in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul is making a point here, and it's a valid point for us today. Because how we follow Christ and our relationship with Christ and our enjoyment in the Christian life very much is dependent on how we see justification. The law condemns Christ justifies. In Romans chapter 7, 
And I'm going to read, just to highlight this a little bit, I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. And just let me read from verse 5. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died with Christ, and we're no longer captive to its power. Now we can really serve God, not in the old way by obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way by the Spirit. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is evil? Of course not. The law is not sinful, but it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known what coveting is, that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin took advantage of this law and aroused all kinds of forbidden desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. Whenever we began to realize what was wrong and what was right and what was wrong, sin began to push us in the direction of that which was wrong. And it had that fatal attraction for us. I felt fine when I did not understand what the law demanded, but when I learned the truth, I realized I had broken the law and was a sinner doomed to die. So the good law, which was supposed to show me the way of life, instead gave me the death penalty. Sin took advantage of the law and filled me. It took the good law and used it to make me guilty of death. But still, the law in itself is holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my doom? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation. So we see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commandment for its own evil purposes. The law is good then. The trouble is not with the law, but with me, because I am sold under slavery with sin as my master. I don't, I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing that I hate. I know perfectly well that when I am doing, what I'm doing is wrong, and my bad conscience shows me that I agree that the law is good. But I can't help myself because it is sin inside me that makes me do these evil things. Law shows us how wrong we truly are before a holy God. I think it was Spurgeon said, it's the black dog that drives the sheep to the shepherd. So this is the conclusion. There is... Therefore, this is a conclusion. This is what therefore is therefore. If we were to follow Paul's line of argument through the previous seven chapters, this is the logical conclusion. That you and I in Christ are free from condemnation. The law cannot condemn us anymore. Christ took the law's condemnation. He nailed it to the cross. All of our breaking of God's law, all of the guilt of it, all of the shame of it, all of the sin of it, all of the condemnation of it, Christ took it and nailed it to his cross and broke the power of it over us. We never could keep God's law. It's too perfect. It's too high. It's too holy. It's too righteous. We needed somebody else to keep it and pay the penalty for us breaking it. And that's where Christ came in. This is what Paul's saying. This is the conclusion. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus 
has made me free from the law of sin and death. In Romans 6, 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Thank God for His grace. Otherwise, we would stand condemned before a holy God today if it wasn't for the grace of God. This is a promise for us right now. There is therefore now no condemnation. This is not a pie in the sky when you die by and by promise. This is a right now promise for us to claim from God's Word. This is not God weighing us in His scales of justice in the day of judgment and then declaring whether we're righteous, whether we're justified or unjustified. He's saying we're justified right now because of what Christ has done for us. We've already been declared righteous in Christ. No condemnation now. 1 John 5.13 I write these things unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. When you realize the grace of God has saved you and has justified you before a holy God, when you know that, you know that you have eternal life right now. It's not something you're waiting to get. You have it today, right now. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. It's all in the past tense, isn't it? Paul was the one who had the revelation of justification. And whenever Martin Luther, for instance, got the revelation of justification, it not only changed his life, it changed the whole of Europe. That's how powerful justification is. That we don't have to earn we cannot earn our salvation. We cannot earn anything. But this is a gift of God. It's free for us to receive. This is a specific promise. No condemnation. doesn't say no accusation. And there's a difference. There will be plenty of accusations. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. Look at Revelation chapter 12 just for a moment. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto the death. But now the accuser of our brethren, who accused him before God night and day, has been cast down. Plenty will make accusations. The devil will make them. People will make them. For there's no condemnation in Christ doesn't say no mistakes, doesn't say no failures, doesn't say no sins. All of us is prone to mistakes and failures and to sin. Peter sinned horribly, terribly, and yet 
there was repentance. And where there is a true repentance, where there's a turning away from her sin and being sorrowful for it and turning to Christ, you can be sure there is abundant pardon, according to prophet Isaiah. He abundantly pardons us so that there is no condemnation. This is a complete, total pardon. No condemnation. Now, God hates sin. Absolutely hates sin. Whether that's the life of the unbeliever or the believer, he hates it because he knows what it does. It destroys. It ruins. It racks lives. So God hates sin. But God will convict us if we sin, not condemn us. He will correct us if we sin, but not condemn us. He will, if necessary, chastise us for sin, but not condemn us. God's heart is to correct us, forgive us, and get us going again. That's God's heart. Not to condemn us and to keep us down, but to lift us up. And this has a wonderful, wonderful effect on us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Only when we are free, listen to me, only when we are free from condemnation can we walk according to the Spirit. We cannot walk in the Spirit if we're living in condemnation. Can't do it. The unbeliever cannot walk according to the Spirit because he is controlled by his sinful flesh. He has not been yet freed from the law of sin and death, but we have. Now some say as long as we're free from condemnation, then we're at liberty to live as we please. A great mistake. Not so, because that's not liberty, that's license. And Paul addresses that question in chapter 6 of Romans. Have a little look at chapter 6. Verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And then if you go on down to verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should abet in its lusts, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but you're under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are under uh, not, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present your yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. And so Paul is saying here, once you realize that you're no longer under the condemnation of the law, but you're under grace, don't take that as an occasion to think, well, I can go out and live whatever way I like, sin as much as I want because grace is so good that I can sin all day long and God will just keep forgiving me. 
He says, no, that's not, that's not what it's about at all. That's license. That's not liberty. Others say yes, but I know we're living under grace, but do we not have to live under the law to please God too? See, these are the issues that Paul's dealing with because he's dealing with both Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews find it very, very hard when they come under grace to leave being under law alone. They find that very, very difficult that they're brought up with it all of their lives. So it was tough for them because the law was something that was structured. But suddenly they're under grace. Well, what are we going to do with the law? Well, some say, well, that's okay. We're under grace, but we've got to live according to the law. But that is not liberty either. That's legalism. It's legalism and it condemns us. And Paul deals with that also in chapter 6 and 7. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times in chapter 8 alone? I counted them. You can count them. 19 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in chapter 8. Verses 1 and 4, we walk in the Spirit. Verses 5 and 6, we discipline our mind by the Spirit. Verse 9, we're born again of the Spirit. Verse 11, the Holy Spirit quickens our mortal bodies. Verse 13, we overcome the sins of the flesh by the Spirit. Verse 14, we're led by the Spirit. Verse 16, the Holy Spirit witnesses to us that we are the sons of God. Verse 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit helps us to pray. Paul, in the midst of all of this teaching about law and grace, continually puts forth the Holy Spirit. Why does he do that? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to live in grace, not under condemnation of the law. We can't do it ourselves. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to live under the grace of God. Does that surprise you? Well, that's what Paul's saying here, that he keeps repeating about the Holy Spirit. Why does he do that? To show us that by the Holy Spirit, we can live this life in the Spirit under the grace of God. Amen? The chapter begins with no condemnation, but it ends with no separation. These two great truths, great certainties, one will keep us in time. There is therefore now no condemnation. And one will keep us in eternity. No separation. Let's read just the end of chapter 8. I'll read from verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul here is showing some things that would seem to separate us from the love of God, that would try to separate us from the love of God, but it can't. It can't do it. Neither death nor life. These are two opposites, aren't they? You see, at this time, Christ's followers were literally being put to death for their faith. They were under tremendous persecution. And so naturally, the question would be, well, what if we die? Will that separate us from God? And Paul says, no, nothing, not even death can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, I'll just read you a couple of verses here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, But when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of Death, glory to God. He holds the keys of death itself. He has them strapped to his side is the imagery in Revelation. So death cannot separate the believer from the love of God. Horrible as it is, awful as it is, it's the last enemy, the Bible says, but it cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Neither life, with all its uncertainties, its tragedies, its disappointments, its injustices, with all its mountains to climb and valleys to go through, nothing in life can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. All the pain of life, all the rottenness of life, all the rejection, the betrayal, the desertion of friends, none of that separated Christ from the love of the Father, did it? None of it. And none of it can separate it from us either. How do we know this? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen again. Then Paul moves from the natural word to the spirit word nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. These, according to Ephesians 6, are the, this is the hierarchy of the spirit world. Principalities and powers, wickedness in high places. All of that beyond our natural sight. Not even that can separate us from the love of God. Why cannot these powerful supernatural beings separate us from the love of God? Because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives, to make intercession for us. How many times have you said to someone, maybe the person even beside you, pray for me this week, because I have to face this. I've got to go to the doctor. I've got to go to the hospital for this checkup. 
Pray for me this way. Do you realize that Christ sits at the right hand of the Father? He's praying for you. How powerful is his prayers? It's wonderful to have your friends praying for you or to have the church praying for you, but when you have Christ himself interceding for you, you're facing a difficult period. Awful trial has come against your life. It feels as if you're nearly going to die. He's praying for you at the right hand of the Father. Make an intercession for you. No wonder death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. To these believers that Paul's writing to, the present was difficult. They were being persecuted. And not only that, it was going to get much, much worse. There would come a time when Peter would write about it. There would come a time when Nero would put their bodies up on poles, cover them with pitch, and set fire to them to light up his garden parties. When Peter talks about the fiery trials that come against you, that's what he was talking about. And so Paul is writing here, and he says, nor things present, nor things to come. Whatever comes, whatever is now, whatever is to come down the road, not even that shall separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Glory to God. Nor height, nor depth. Psalm 139. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Glory to God. Nor height, nor depth. Nothing shall separate us, nor any other created thing. Just as if Paul said, just in case I miss something, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Today, by God's grace, believer, you have been justified. So there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And by God's grace and His Spirit enables us to walk in the Spirit that we do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, that we're justified. We walk in the Spirit. That's the heart of the Christian life, friends. Knowing our justification, knowing the grace of God, and then living it and enjoying it and being blessed by it and walking in it. And whenever we do that, then our Christian experience is richer and fuller and more blessed than we ever know. When you put your head in your pillow at night, you can know that God loves you, that he cares for you. You say, well, what if I have sinned? Repent. 
Say, Lord, I'm sorry, knowing that a good father will forgive you because you've been justified in Christ. Glory to God. The gospel's a wonderful thing, isn't it? No wonder we want men and women to come to Christ and be saved because it's the greatest life that you can possibly live. And we've got to live it for all eternity. Because <laughs> this life is going to pass pretty quickly, isn't it? I mean, everybody's talking about all over the... Sally said to me last night, is there anywhere in the world that's not fighting? Everybody's fighting. The world is a tinderbox. The Lord's coming back soon, isn't he? Yes. Glory to God. Let's pray. Martin is going to lead us in communion this morning. So he's going to come and do that for us.